Over the past uh, weeks, starting earlier this fall, we've been working with a series of teachings in this Monday night group called the Ten Paramitas, or Perfections. And they're really a description of one's own true nature, or Buddha nature, of the possibility of the awakened heart, um, and how we might discover this or recover this um, in different dimensions of our being. And so far we've talked about the inherent generosity of the awakened heart and the virtuous heart and what um, true true renunciation would mean and uh, wise effort. And in all of these and in this teaching of discovering one's own Buddha nature, the central theme is uh, freedom or liberation of the heart, what the Buddhist texts call the sure heart's release that's possible in all the changing circumstances of the world. Next week we'll continue with that um, set of teachings on the perfection of wisdom. As the traditional story is told, um, the Buddha grew up as a prince um, and lived a life of indulgence and a kind of unconscious, unconscious indulgence, if you will, in the palace with all the pleasures of a princely life. And then seeing old age and suffering and death and the world of many forms, the Buddha went on a quest for liberation and went to the other extreme, as most of you know from this great story or myth, and undertook the most extreme ascetic practices that were offered in India at that time, and almost died from them, six years of the most wild austerities, until some people would look at him and say, the monk Siddhartha has died, and someone else would say, no, he's not died, he's just near death, he's practicing austerities. Um, And in those austerities, he tried to fight against his own body and his own feelings and his own mind and somehow conquer them to find freedom. And after the six years of wild and... um, extraordinary self-mortification and austerities, he sat one day and realized that it didn't work, that it hadn't succeeded, and came through that, through reflection and through a deep understanding, to what he called the middle path. As long as I I had not discovered in my own experience completely and fully the middle way, unsurpassed awakening and liberation was not complete in me. And this middle path is the path that is neither indulgence and getting lost in the things of the world, nor is it aversion or moving oneself from the things of the world, but rather, as the Buddha's words say there is the middle path which the blessed one has discovered which allows one to see 
and know that which leads to peace, to clarity, to wisdom, to freedom in this moment and in any moment. And this is the place of balance, of openness. So that when two acrobats came to speak to the Buddha in one of these old dialogues, a grandfather and a granddaughter who traveled from village to village doing balancing acts as a way of making a living. And the grandfather said, it seems to me that what is important is that we protect one another in this, that I take care of my granddaughter and she takes care of me and thus we will prosper and our act will continue. And the granddaughter said, it seems to me that if we take care with ourselves and protect with mindfulness and compassion our every action, then through that we'll take care of each other and things will follow well from that. And the Buddha looked at the two of them and said, young though she is, your granddaughter uh, speaks the words of true wisdom. That if you find balance in yourself and care for that with mindfulness, respect, compassion, then through that you can bring that care to all of the rest of the world. The middle way is the discovery of this awakened heart that is our true nature, our true capacity as human beings. And it is the heart that is balanced with mindful presence or wisdom and compassion. And with this quality of presence and compassion together, we have an inner compass, a rudder, a way of moving through the world that is very confusing, as we know, in these times. We have an inner sense of that guidance that leads us from moment to moment to real freedom and balance. Now, Alex, who will be speaking in a few minutes, started more than 30 years ago in his own Dharma practice in the 1960s and graduated as a Buddhist scholar from Harvard University, PhD, and then began studying in India, um, or maybe even before he graduated, um, and became one of the official translators for His Holiness the Dalai Lama for more than 10 years at all kinds of teachings throughout the world, and lived in Dharamsala in the community of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan community in exile in India. And over the course of these 30 years of studying and scholarship and teaching and translation, has now amassed about uh, 50 different manuscripts on Buddhist practice that he's been working on or translations. So he's decided to stop teaching so much and try to get the books completed and out into the world. Um, He was also a disciple of of a number of great Tibetan lamas. One of the chief of those was uh, Venerable Serkong Rinpoche. And one of the things about Serkong Rinpoche is that he wanted to go and teach the Dharma and bring the Dharma to places that it had never been taught before or to places where it had died out. So he really made an effort to spread teachings in places, um, kind of unique places, both in India and Tibet and beyond. And after um, receiving that inspiration from Serkong Rinpoche, it seems Alex um, took him up 
uh, took up the challenge of that <laughs> and uh, became a, a somewhat um, itinerant and peripatetic uh, Dharma teacher who has now taught in 70 or more countries from um, Uganda and uh, Uruguay and Paraguay and Latvia and Lithuania and Kazakhstan and, and every place you could imagine in between. And he was also the um, emissary, at least in a semi-official way, from the Dalai Lama to the Muslim countries and has been doing a number of teaching in places like in Cairo and in Syria and various other places, a, a Buddhist and Muslim dialogue. Um, and now he's recently published one of his 50 books, came out, um, one of the first, um, which is in <clears throat> a unique way, not so much the Buddhist language per se, um, but very simple teachings um, on finding balance in one's life in this world, the middle path, exercises and teachings. And that balance of how to neither get lost and overwhelmed in the world, nor to remove oneself, to be indifferent or frightened or meet the world with aversion. The heart of the training here of insight meditation or mindfulness um, is this quality, mindfulness, of a kind and clear presence in each moment. In the moment that we are mindful, breath of body, of the people around us, the circumstances, of feelings and thoughts, it's as if in that moment of mindfulness things come into balance. You can be completely lost and freaked out, and all of a sudden, in a moment, there's this little recognition, oh, pretty freaked out, aren't we, today? <laughs> and in that moment of recognition, it's as if suddenly there's space around that difficulty and things come to a balance. The balance that neither judges nor resists nor grasps, but simply is with things as they are. The wisdom that sees things clearly. And the deepening of that balance, which sees without reacting with greed or hatred or fear or delusion, the small sense of self, instead leads as a gateway to the awakened heart, to that potential to respond with love and openness and respect or freedom in the midst of all things. Now, there are so many areas, and Alex will speak of them, in which balance is important. In ethics, to speak what's true and what's useful. In generosity, to give to others, but also to care in some balanced and wise way for oneself. In this insanely busy and complicated society and time, to know when to act and when to take time to be quiet for oneself and in oneself. It's a little poem from Mary Oliver on not going to Walden Pond. It isn't very far as highways lie. I might be back by nightfall, having seen the rough pines and the stones and the clear water. Friends argue that I might be wiser for it. They do not hear that far-off Yankee whisper, how dull we grow from hurrying here and there. Many have gone and think me half a fool to miss a day away in the cool country. Maybe. 
But in Thoreau's book I read and cherish, going to Walden is not so easy a thing as a quick green visit. It is the slow and difficult trick of living and finding it where you are. So that kind of balance, and how do we really develop that, which Alex will speak to. There is no simple prescription in trying to understand this. Uh, I remember Paul Reps, who was one of the first American Zen masters. I don't know if you ever met him, Alex. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a tailor from Brooklyn before he became a Zen master. <laughs> My favorite of his teachings, which was in calligraphy, this big poster he wrote, everything in moderation. And then in, in the bottom, in the little smaller calligraphy he wrote, including moderation. <laughs> So the idea is not that there's some formula, but rather that we want to investigate and discover, like riding a bicycle, how it is possible to be present and balanced and open with this experience, alive and wise and compassionate. I read you one story in another sentence or two and then turn it over to Alex. Because reality or the experiences of this life we've been given changes all the time and the circumstances are always throwing new questions of how to respond. In 1921, Lewis Laws became the new warden at a very tough Sing Sing prison. When when Warden Laws retired some 20 years later, that prison had become a model of a humanitarian institution and kind of a amazing thing when we think about all the prisons that are being built in this country at this time. More money than schools, and often poverty prisons, really, because of our injustice and racism. But anyway, when Laws was asked about the transformation of Sing Sing, he said, I owe it all to my wife Catherine, who was buried outside the prison walls. Catherine Laws was a young mother with three small children when her husband was appointed warden. Everyone warned her from the beginning she should never step inside the prison walls, but that didn't stop her. When the first prison basketball game was held, she went, walking into the gym with her three beautiful kids and sat in the stands together with the inmates. Her attitude was, my husband and I are going to take care of these men. Their care is entrusted to us, and I believe that they will take care of us, and I needn't worry. She insisted on getting acquainted with them and their records. She discovered in one man convicted for murder that he was blind, so she paid him a visit. And holding his hand in hers, she said, Do you read Braille? What is Braille? he asked. And then she taught him how to read. Years later, he would weep for her. Later, Catherine found a deaf mute in prison. She went to school to learn how to use sign language and went back and taught it to him. And then, more than a decade later, she was killed in a car accident. The following day, Lewis Laws didn't come to work, and it seemed almost instantly the whole prison knew that something was wrong. The day after that, her body was placed in a casket at her home, three-quarters of a mile from the prison. And as the acting warden took his early morning walk, he was shocked to see a crowd of the toughest inmates gathered like a herd at the main gate. 
He came closer and noted their grief and sadness. He turned and faced the man. All right, man, you can go. Just promise to come back in tonight. And then he opened the gate, and a column of all of Sing Sing's inmates walked without a guard the three-quarters of a mile to stand in line and pay their final respects to Catherine Laws. And then every single one of them checked back in when it was time, every one. So the question is not about being naive, but about the possibilities in a moment of how we treat one another and how we discover in the wise heart what can be trusted, even in difficult circumstances. With that, I turn it over to Alex. Thank you very much, Jack. The uh, topic of gaining balance, of course, is one which is uh, very far-reaching. As Jack said, it reaches many uh, areas of our life and of our practice. And uh, specifically, what uh, I uh, deal with is uh, the point of gaining or developing balanced sensitivity. Sensitivity is something which uh, is a a feature inherent in all of us, but uh, it's something which is often out of balance. If we look at the ingredients of uh, sensitivity, uh, well, first if we look at the objects of sensitivity, we can be uh, sensitive to the environment, we can be be sensitive to uh, political issues or business issues, we can be uh, sensitive to dust. Many uh, things can be the object of our sensitivity, but uh, specifically uh, what uh, I find is, uh, uh, touches everyone's life is sensitivity to other people and sensitivity to ourselves. And if we look at the ingredients of sensitivity, we uh, find that uh, it requires or it entails, on the one hand, paying attention, on the second hand, uh, caring, and then also responding. And uh, each of these can be out of balance, either to the extreme of being insensitive or to the other extreme of being hypersensitive. And these are things which, uh, uh, when they are out of balance, cause us a great deal of problems. Uh, If uh, our attentiveness is out of balance, then if we don't pay attention at all, to uh, what's happening uh, with uh, situations, we're very insensitive to that. We may be insensitive to uh, coming home and finding that the people in our home, our uh, partners, our uh, family, are upset and we don't even notice it, and that causes a great deal of difficulty. Or uh, we uh, might not notice that uh, we ourselves are under a great deal of stress, and we're insensitive to that. And that also causes uh, difficulties. We may also not pay attention to the consequences of our actions. We say various things or do various things without uh, really thinking uh, how they're going to affect the other person, and it hurts their feelings terribly. Or we think that uh, we can work on and on and uh, perhaps uh, not spend so much time at home, and uh, we're insensitive to the consequences of that on uh, our family and on our health. On the other hand, 
we can uh, pay attention to things in an over-intense way so that uh, we're always fretting over uh, the health of our children, uh, where have you gone, when are you coming home, and so on, uh, or overly fret about uh, our own health, and uh, in this way we're uh, very difficult to live with uh, because of this uh, over-emotional, hypersensitive uh, um, mind frame. If we look in terms of caring, even if we uh, pay attention to what's going on, if we just uh, note it without really caring, then uh, um, we don't do very much about it. And so it's very important to have balance in caring. If we don't care at all about uh, what's happening with our family or with what's happening within ourselves, then uh, obviously we're very much out of balance. Or on the other hand, we can care too much and if we care too much in a very anxious and uh, worried state of mind, that also can drive everybody crazy. And uh, that's not very pleasant at all to live with. Even if we pay attention and uh, we care enough to do something and we care in a uh, relaxed and calm type of way so that uh, uh, we're not uh, uh, distraught by what we notice, still our uh, way of responding may be out of balance. We may either respond, not respond at all because of uh, being frightened that we might do the wrong thing, or we may uh, not respond because we're too busy and uh, we don't really take the other person's situation uh, seriously, or we don't take the uh, signs of uh, degenerating health within ourselves uh, seriously. We're too busy. Also, uh, we can uh, respond in a way which is uh, insensitive in terms of uh, giving other people or responding to other people in uh, ways that don't really uh, correspond to what they need, but it's more in terms of uh, what we would want, but uh, might not really uh, be apropos. Or we might uh, respond in a, a, a way which doesn't give the other person any uh, freedom or leave them any dignity. And uh, that is a, a hypersensitive or, or over uh, response to the situation. Or we get so emotional about it that it frightens the other person and uh, also causes problems. So this is a very real um, uh, problem, this, this uh, whole issue of sensitivity and uh, something which I think touches everyone's lives. And so it's quite important, I think, to try to uh, develop some sort of uh, balance that uh, allows us to uh, use the uh, innate abilities within ourselves to be sensitive to uh, others and to ourselves in a way which will bring about uh, happiness to uh, everyone. Now, there are many different types of exercises that uh, we can use for uh, gaining uh, balance in our uh, sensitivity, and uh, it's uh, quite a, an awesome task when we look at it because it touches so many different uh, areas. We can uh, uh, deal, you know, we have problems with our feelings, 
uh, either we are out of touch with our feelings or uh, our feelings are out of control. And then there's the whole issue of uh, our feelings something that we can control or that uh, um, are we perhaps conceiving of it in uh, an odd way, a dualistic way, me and my feelings. And I have to, I can't feel my feelings or I need to be afraid of my feelings or because they're going to overwhelm me and so on. There's so many different dimensions that are involved in trying to gain that balance. Often a lot of confusion is underlying it. What I'd like to do this evening is to introduce uh, one of the exercises that's in this book, Developing Balance Sensitivity, which uh, will give you uh, perhaps a little bit of a taste of uh, what uh, the training is like. And I'd like to uh, correlate it to uh, something that Jack was uh, mentioning earlier this evening, which is uh, Buddha nature. Buddha nature is uh, speaking about uh, the uh, uh, fundamental innate features or factors within each of us which will allow us to become uh, a fully awakened being, someone who is uh, able to be of best help to others and to ourselves in as uh, full a way as is possible. And these factors are part of uh, everyone. Uh, It's something that we are all born with. If we look at it on a very simple level, we all have a mind, so we're all able to understand things. We all have a heart, we're able to feel things. We all have the ability to communicate. We all have physical energy. And uh, these are the working materials within us which uh, will allow us to grow. They may be limited now in the way that they're functioning, but uh, if we can uh, get rid of the uh, various things that are preventing them from functioning optimally, and if we can uh, stimulate them to grow fuller and fuller so that they work at their highest level of potential, then we have all the ingredients within ourselves to be of best help to others and to ourself. For having balanced sensitivity, uh, there are all the ingredients within us which uh, will allow for that. It's a matter of uh, somehow quieting down and uh, coming in touch with them. Uh, If we look at uh, the nature of the mind, the nature of the mind is uh, quiet. Uh, It's not that it's turned off, but uh, the nature of the mind is that it's not cluttered with uh, all sorts of uh, chatter and uh, judgments and attitudes and so on, something which is very peaceful and open. The same thing with our hearts. It's not uh, by nature filled with all sorts of uh, prejudices or fears or attachments or feelings of self-importance and so on. Uh, It, by nature, is also uh, calm and uh, open. The nature of the mind is also something, and heart is uh, something which is uh, joyous because there's energy, and the energy is something which flows. And that flow of energy by itself is something which is joyous. It's something which is warm. The uh, uh, analogy that's always used in all the Buddhist texts is that of the sun. The sun uh, is naturally uh, warm. It naturally shines out to others without uh, prejudice, uh, without a feeling of self-importance. It just is that way by its nature.
And so uh, we have all these type of factors which are similar to that. And so one of the ways for, uh, that is suggested by the Buddhist training, uh, by the Buddhist teachings, for training ourselves to be able to get in touch with this uh, innate balance of uh, sensitivity is to try to quiet down uh, our um, minds, our hearts, our expressions, and so on, so that uh, we can start to uh, come into contact with these factors. Uh, Of course, working like that is not uh, the full solution because uh, our barriers, our obstacles, our blocks come back quite quickly. It's quite natural. It's important in any type of training to realize that uh, uh, things do not work in the universe in a linear type of way. We found that uh, to be true in modern mathematics with chaos theory. It seems to be true in terms of uh, the uh, uh, um, most current ways of understanding how the brain works. Things work in a non-linear fashion. This is very much the way that it's taught in Buddhism as well. We follow a type of training, but uh, it doesn't work in a linear manner. It's not that we do step A, B, C, and then as a result we get D. Uh, It just doesn't work that way. But uh, it's more like uh, a snowflake, you know. If you look at uh, the pattern of a snowflake, uh, which is the the uh, form of uh, you know this chaotic uh, imaging that we have in nature, then uh, uh, when you look on a very small scale, it's quite chaotic. We can't at all uh, understand what's happening. And likewise, within our lives, when we follow spiritual training, it's like that as well. We go on a retreat, we do a meditative practice, and yet the next day we lose our temper, uh, we get uh, hassled while we're driving, we overreact, or we don't notice what's going on in our families, and so on. But then, again, we do a practice again for a little while, things seem to be going well, and uh, so on. So on this short scale... Uh, it seems quite chaotic what's happening. Well, that is the way that things work in nature. But uh, like a snowflake, if we uh, look uh, from a much larger perspective at the uh, entire uh, pattern which emerges, then uh, we can see on this larger scale that there is a pattern. It's not uh, absolutely um, without any sense. And so the same thing is true in our own lives. When we uh, try to work with uh, uh, Dharma practices or uh, these specialized practices here for sensitivity, uh, we don't get instant success. That's a fantasy to imagine that we will. But uh, rather, it's a, a, a progress comes uh, in a nonlinear fashion. A little bit goes better, then it gets worse, Uh, things come up, all sorts of situations occur over time, but if we look in the long term, over five years, ten years, and so on, then slowly the pattern emerges that uh, our life does uh, become improved. We are able to handle situations in a more understanding, warm, and balanced, sensitive type of way. And so, 
training and sensitivity is uh, uh, needs, I think, to be understood along that type of analogy. There are many, many different types of uh, practices that are outlined in this program. They come under 22 big exercises. Each of them have anywhere from 20 to 50 uh, parts or aspects. And uh, it's something that uh, requires a tremendous amount of, um, what should we say, dedication. Uh, Dedication because we see the usefulness of it. We see the usefulness of uh, uh, not uh, overreacting to what's going on with others or with ourselves and the usefulness of not running away from it or uh, being afraid to feel uh, what's going on and respond in a balanced way. So let me uh, present one of these exercises which can start to help us in this uh, direction but uh, certainly is never going to give us instant results. And uh, for doing this uh, exercise, in the training, basically uh, the uh, uh, format, uh, which I think is, uh, can be helpful, is to uh, work from, uh, what should we say, less threatening situations to more energetic uh, threatening ones. And so to work from first uh, thinking of uh, specific people in our lives, people that uh, we might have difficulty with in our relationships, uh, people with whom uh, we either are insensitive or are hypersensitive and overreact to them. And then when we're able to uh, practice having a more balanced attitude and feeling toward them, then to uh, graduate to working with uh, live people where the energy is uh, much stronger. And uh, uh, to do that first sitting in a a circle of uh, anywhere from 10 to 25 people and uh, trying to uh, develop these uh, attitudes, these positive feelings towards each person in the circle. And then to become more intimate and work with a, a partner Uh, and to work with a variety of partners because we find that naturally we tend to uh, respond in very different ways towards different people. And so uh, it's uh, helpful to do exercises with people who are of the uh, opposite gender, people of the same gender, people who are older than us, people who are much younger than us, people uh, uh, whom we know, people whom we don't know people from different backgrounds from ourselves or different ethnic groups or from the same ethnic group. Because although we may be able to have balanced sensitivity with uh, one or more of these groups, we may have difficulty with others. And uh, it's important to become aware, to be sensitive to ourselves, uh, where are our problematic areas and to try to address them. Once we've worked with other people like that, then uh, the next step is to go to working with ourselves. And for people, particularly from our culture, uh, we tend to have uh, major blocks because of low self-esteem. And uh, because of that uh, low self-esteem, we tend to be uh, out of touch with ourselves, Uh, and uh, not really uh, deal with ourselves in a very fair and balanced type of way. And so we can work first with a a mirror uh, regarding ourselves and trying to see ourselves and being sensitive to the 
pains that we might be feeling uh, and uh, so on, and then to work without a mirror just in terms of our general feelings towards ourselves, and then to go to some of the most painful times of our life, uh, times when we've perhaps made mistakes, when we've acted foolishly, and uh, which we find too painful to deal with. And so either we block it out, or whenever we think of it, we overreact to it, and uh, to try to apply the techniques to those areas so that we can gain more and more balance. So we can see that uh, any program for dealing with uh, gaining balance and sensitivity is a very far-reaching endeavor and one that uh, requires great uh, seriousness. Here, the type of exercise that uh, I'd like to uh, introduce uh, is one that, because of the size of our room here, perhaps we can do best by working with a partner. So if you could uh, please face uh, the person next to you, uh, then we can uh, uh, try to do this, and I'll lead you through it as we uh, uh, proceed. <coughs> You can move about as you need to to find a partner. Anybody looking who doesn't have, raise your hand and look for another hand that's up. Um, right in the middle here, there's somebody. This is not dating, so, you know, it's just very simple. Finding a partner for a few minutes. And let yourself be settled. Okay, so in order to uh, be able to, so basic ingredients that we uh, are going to work with for gaining uh, balance and sensitivity is a balanced way of being attentive, a balanced way of caring, and a balanced way of uh, responding. And in order to be able to pay attention in a, uh, a balanced type of way, it's necessary to empty our minds and hearts of extraneous things. The nature of the mind and heart is that uh, they are both naturally quiet. And so this requires relaxing. And uh, so let us first try to uh, relax, sitting in a, a comfortable position have the muscles of uh, the body be relaxed. So we can work together. And particularly, what we want to do is to quiet the mind of all mental chatter. 
all verbalizations that uh, might be going on, since that just produces a veil that uh, prevents us from really uh, relating to the other person. And now please open your eyes and look at the person in a kind and uh, gentle way, not in a rude or intrusive type of way, (laughs) but uh, relaxed, not overly intense. And what we need to also drop are any preconceptions that we might have or nonverbal judgments about the person and about ourselves. And one technique that we can use is to just breathe these out without making it visual. But uh, as we exhale in a normal, gentle way, just imagine these preconceptions and judgments and verbal thoughts leaving us. Leaving us more quiet and more open to the other person. Also, we need to drop our any feelings that we might have of self-importance, which also causes a major block in being able to relate to others in an open way. Here we're just obviously imagining that we get rid of our self-importance, it's not so easy to do. (laughs) That requires further exercises. (laughs) But here we just uh, work with our imagination to imagine it so that we get a taste of what might be possible. Then we can work with more uh, uh, deeper methods for reaching this. But try to let go of the self-preoccupation and self-importance so that uh, we can directly pay attention to the other person. Then also um, try to feel that there are no solid walls existing between us preventing heartfelt communication. And feel that gently dropping away. Of course, there are boundaries of propriety, but there are no solid Berlin walls separating us. And there's nothing to fear. Because inside, it's not that there's a frightened little me facing a dangerous you, but it's just open and quiet and relaxed. 
the natural nature of the mind and the heart. And without a, a feeling of fear, then what we discover is a joy at the possibility of an encounter with another human being, the natural joy of the heart. And feel that joy. And direct that joy with focus at the other person. in a gentle way, not blasting them with it. <laughs> gentle. And in this way, feel warmth toward the person. And with our heart and mind quiet and open, there's the space for understanding. And feel that understanding. You may not know the particulars, that doesn't matter. It's the openness of the mind that's able to understand. And with that warmth and understanding, then, like the sun, the sun naturally shines, and so likewise, this affects our appearance. And so we show an appropriate facial expression, don't just sit with our face blank, an appropriate <laughs> body expression. Like the sun, it naturally shines forth. But it shines forth with a certain self-control of ethics. so that it is calm, not being overly uh, bright, but in a, a kind and gentle way. And imagine responding in kind words and with thoughtful actions toward the person. as the natural response of the warmth of our hearts. And now we try to go through the sequence again of no mental chatter, no judgments, no self-importance, No solid walls, no fears, joy, focus, warmth, understanding, facial expression, Modesty, kind words, thoughtful actions. 
No mental chatter. No judgments. No self-importance. No solid walls. No fears. Joy. Focus. Warmth. Understanding. Facial expression. Modest. Kind words. Thoughtful actions. And we think how wonderful it would be if I could become like this with everyone. I wish I could become like this. I shall definitely try to become like this. Thank you. yourself come back to some silence if you would and at the end of the evening you can talk further to your partner when we practice like this we get a little bit of a taste of uh, what it might be like to be uh, more open and warm and uh, sensitive in a balanced way uh, toward others. But uh, after all, we're only doing this in our imagination by uh, imagining that these walls are down and that uh, we're not making judgments and uh, that we really feel sincere warmth and so on. But uh, as I was saying, things don't work in a linear way. And so fears, insecurities, and so on do come up again. And so it's necessary to go further. And to once we have some sort of taste from our imagination of what it might be like, then to 
work further and gain more and more confidence through other techniques to see that uh, we actually do have the capacity and have acted in these ways in the past by recalling various incidents which uh, we might not actually be so aware of that uh, confirm the fact that we have this. Like, for instance, uh, joy or happiness. Often we have uh, the feeling that uh, being happy is something which has to be dramatic. It's like out of a movie that, you know, you go skipping and dancing down the street uh, doing a tap dance, and there's all sorts of music in the background, and that's happiness. But obviously that's uh, a uh, a dramatized exaggeration of it. But if we look at the definition of happiness, which is given in the Buddhist teachings, uh, it's defined as that feeling which when we experience it, we would like for it to continue. Which is a very interesting definition. Uh, Unhappiness is defined as that feeling which when we experience it, we would not like it to continue. (laughs) By that definition, a neutral feeling is hardly ever there because a neutral feeling would be the exact midpoint between these two, and it's almost never that. And so what we learn to appreciate are the subtle levels of happiness, uh, the non-dramatic forms of happiness. If we can recognize those within ourselves, then we find that uh, our own very nature gives us a wonderful gift. If, for instance, we're looking at the wall, uh, if we continue to look at the wall, then that's a low level of happiness. If we turn our head away, that's a low level of dissatisfaction. And so joy is something that we can find in any moment if uh, we can recognize it as just the state of being quiet and content. And so if we can remember moments of joy, like for instance, lying in a warm, comfortable bed in the morning before we uh, actually get out of bed, then we can, even the most depressed person, can confirm that uh, they have experienced happiness and they know what it tastes like. If you think about it, it's very true. Often we feel that I'm never happy, I'm, o- I'm never uh, satisfied, I'm always miserable. But that isn't really the case. And so if in these very simple ways we can uh, recognize and acknowledge within ourselves these qualities such as joy and uh, understanding and warmth and uh, uh, openness, then that gives us more confidence that it's possible to actually cultivate them. It's not just a nice dream that we can imagine and do in a controlled atmosphere like here, but it is something which really is possible. And then we can work with uh, uh, more and more specialized techniques for being able to access these qualities in a much more stable type of way. So this is a, a general Um, introduction then to this type of sensitivity training. 
we have some moments left, uh, perhaps, for any questions or comments that you might have. Yes? I was wondering if you could give us a Buddhist definition of anger. The question is, the Buddhist definition of anger, it's a state of mind which uh, focuses on a certain um, uh, distasteful... Well, it focuses on an object, and it uh, inflates the negative aspects or negative qualities of that object. And over-inflating it, then it is a very forceful state of mind to try to either destroy it, get rid of it, or get away from it. That's anger. (laughs) So it's a situation that, you know, you inflate into this is the worst thing in the world and we get really angry with it so the the, uh, energy is very aggressive against it or you bang your foot against uh, the table at night and you over-inflate the pain which after all is just a sensation and then, you know, you are very, you know, uh, excited with a tremendous amount of energy, um, you know, wishing that it hadn't happened. Um, I'm aware as I listen to you, thank you for that, that buried in the very simple teachings of this, of this uh, imaginary um, uh, letting go of fear and boundaries and joy and so forth, is much more deeply your 30 years of training of visualization and all of the tantric practices and Tibetan Buddhist practices. And even in answering about anger, which I appreciated very much, I know you have a background in, more broadly in this. And I'm curious, one of, the, one of the most common symbols from the Tibetan Buddhist or Vajrayana pantheon are the wrathful Buddhists, um, mm-hmm. who have the appearance of um, fierceness or ferociousness, somewhat akin to anger, but not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you would say something about... Um, there's anger, as you just described, and what are all these Buddhas with swords and flames and kind of the wrathful? How do you, how do you relate those two? Is there a positive side to that? Well, in science, we speak about uh, how uh, in uh, quantum physics there are different quantum levels of energy, and uh, we find that uh, this is uh, uh, perhaps a helpful way of understanding different levels of energy within ourselves. Uh, In uh, um, the description of uh, the mind, mind is, uh, without going into tremendous detail what mind is, but uh, uh, when we are speaking of awareness of things, then there's a certain energy which is involved with awareness of things, uh, which is uh, sort of, uh, what should we say, the carrier of that awareness, and that energy naturally is going to vibrate on uh, several levels. And we can specify two distinct levels. One would be a more quiet, less energetic level, and the other level would be a more uh, active energetic level. And these are the natural levels at which uh, the energy uh, will vibrate or operate within the body. Now, these can be mixed with uh, confusion and then negative aspects, or they can be mixed with understanding 
and uh, um, positive aspects like warmth and uh, love. When uh, the low level of energy is mixed with uh, confusion and uh, disturbing emotions like fear and so on, then we get indifference, we get insensitivity, we get torpor, and uh, so on. So it's a very negative level of uh, low energy. But uh, when it's mixed with understanding and uh, kindness and so on, then it's the level of energy which would allow us to calm down uh, a frightened uh, child or uh, a very uh, upset uh, partner or person would allow us to just be very gentle with them in a loving and understanding way. Likewise, when we talk about uh, the uh, more energetic quantum level of, uh, uh, or stronger quantum level of our energy, then uh, when that's mixed with uh, confusion and uh, with uh, negative uh, um, uh, emotions, then uh, that becomes anger, it becomes uh, aggressive, selfish greed, and so on. Whereas uh, when it's mixed with understanding and warmth, then it is being forceful in situations in which uh, it's very necessary to act in a forceful type of way such as if our child is about to run out into the road, you don't just say very gently, you know, oh dear, don't do that. You may have to, uh, in a strong way, grab the child, uh, even if it might frighten the child. But uh, still, it may be necessary to do that uh, to prevent the child from being hit by a truck. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, of course, we can do it in more or less gentle, gentler ways, but still, it's a forceful uh, motion of, uh, of energy. And so in the uh, tantric pantheons, when we have these various figures uh, that uh, are unfortunately translated as wrathful and angry, that's a, a, an inappropriate translation. They are representing forceful energy, which uh, is uh, necessary in many situations where we have to uh, be firm, where in certain situations we have to say no. Uh, and so on. These are part of gaining balance. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to ask you about um, the Dalai Lama and your time with, with uh, him and um, maybe just your personal feeling of uh, uh, what that was like for you and um, what main sort of things you learned through that and also then no, then just what you know about the situation, uh, or what maybe we could do about the situation in Tibet. His Holiness the Dalai Lama has. Struck me as being certainly the most uh, highly developed person that I've ever met in all dimensions, in terms of certainly being the most intelligent person that I've ever met with the most incredibly perfect uh, photographic memory, which is not just of uh, textual things and facts, but of people, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, but also, uh, the one with the most uh, open and warm and spontaneous heart in a very 
down-to-earth and uh, humble and unpretentious type of way, very, very direct. One of the things that uh, I find most amazing about uh, being in his presence is uh, an extraordinary sense of clarity. His mind and heart are so clear that it sets up a whole atmosphere of clarity around him so that he himself, even visually, looks more in focus than more ordinarily we see things in focus. So, uh, and when we think, you know, when one thinks of, uh, you know, his name means uh, an ocean. You know, Dalai means, is the Mongolian word actually for ocean. Uh, his mind and heart and energy and ability to communicate are as vast and deep as uh, an ocean, uh, just in terms of all the things that he is interested in uh, and, which, and in which he has um, a, a phenomenally profound understanding and concern and an ability to put it all together. So aside from all the different aspects of the Buddhist teachings, from all the different Buddhist traditions, He's extremely uh, interested uh, and uh, tries to get deeper and deeper understanding of all the various uh, world uh, religions and traditions and philosophies and psychology and uh, different aspects of uh, science. And uh, on top of all of that, he's the head of state. And so he's completely uh, well informed on all, you know, world affairs and how to deal with all the aspects of not only his own people in exile, but in dealing with all the various nations and so on in the world uh, to try to uh, improve the situation in Tibet. On top of that, he has so many problems and difficulties that he deals with in terms of uh, um, Chinese efforts to uh, uh, suppress uh, his people and uh, various other forces which are uh, trying to prevent his uh, good works. And throughout all of that, he maintains an extraordinary humor and an extraordinary uh, humanness, which is uh, uh, quite uh, touching. I remember once uh, His Holiness had, uh, His Holiness loves to, uh, uh, in the past, has uh, given me these various mission impossibles. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of these mission impossibles was, uh, he said one day, to, uh, he would like for me to find for him a uh, West African uh, Sufi uh, leader, <laughs> spiritual leader, for him to uh, meet. And so, okay, thank you very much. And, uh, <laughs> and swallow this instructions because it will self-destruct in uh, 30 seconds. So anyway, uh, incredibly, one fell out of the sky in, uh, uh, in my travels. And uh, uh, everything was incredible that, you know, he happened to be going to India for some medical treatment and just happened to, ha you know, be there the day that I was arriving back and just happened to have, you know, two days extra in his schedule. I mean, it was as if his holiness had foreseen uh, all of this and had foreseen that I would, you know, make this connection with this uh, West African Sufi master. And uh, in Munich, Germany, I mean, I mean, so it's absolutely bizarre. 
And anyway, I brought him, uh, I accompanied him to uh, Dharamsala, and uh, he was uh, a magnificent uh, uh, man in appearance, uh, you know, very tall, uh, uh, you know, fully like a, chi- a traditional chieftain, wearing these magnificent white robes and so on. And I accompanied him into uh, the audience room to meet with uh, His Holiness. And uh, the Sufi leader was uh, so moved to te- so moved by uh, the experience of meeting His Holiness that he began to weep, and uh, His Holiness himself immediately jumped up and went into his anteroom and brought back some Kleenex <laughs> for him. And I think this is very indicative of the really heart-to-heart, human, down-to-earth level with which uh, he meets and uh, communicates with others. And as for what we can do to help the Tibetan situation, that's not an easy one. I think, again, uh, it's uh, uh, perhaps um, this point that I was saying of uh, a linear of things progressing in in non-linear ways is relevant. Uh, Solutions for uh, the difficulties that have been going on in Tibet are not going to happen overnight. And it's not a matter of, you know, even if uh, the People's Republic of China were to give Tibet autonomy, that all the problems would go away. The ecological problems, the uh, uh, economic problems, uh, the social problems that have occurred are very, very serious things that, uh, you know, just over the long run, uh, long term, they can uh, improve. So perhaps the best thing that we can do is again to try to uh, uh, bring more and more pressure uh, on, what should we say? So it's so complex, you know, because it has to do with trade with China and economic factors and not wanting to upset the apple cart and not wanting to alienate China so that they veto, uh, you know, various things that uh, the United States might want to pass through the United Nations and so on. It's horrendously complex. Uh, I think that uh, all we can do is to try to make people who are in power more and more aware of uh, our general concern for uh, Tibet getting a fair deal uh, in the situation while still respecting the business interests and global economic interests and all these other things, strategic interests and the other things that are there to try to find some sort of balanced solution rather than a Shangri-La solution because Shangri-Las are a nice fantasy, but they are a fantasy. So we have to end in a, in a minute. Um, I'm delighted that you came, Alex, and also I thank you for demonstrating a certain balance and sensitivity, not just in the exercise, but really in the response to the questions and um, your own uh, years and dedication to practice. Um, and I, I can't imagine, and Alex's schedule is or at least it has been, well, <coughs> three days in Kazakhstan and then a few days in Mongolia and then flying to Bayula, Russia and doing that for a while and then going down to the Balkans and going through Serbia or Croatia and uh, Bulgaria and Armenia and trying to get text translated and then taking a little break back in India and then going back again and now doing all of Africa and then starting all over again and doing Latin America. Extraordinary. Um, Anyway, I'm glad you came to Spirit Rock.
in all those places. <laughs> as interesting as Kazakhstan. <laughs> and um, Alex's book, which we've had in the bookstore and we'll be getting more copies of, apparently is now sold out, but we'll get his book on balance sensitivity and open secret bookstore in San Rafael. Also. It's called Developing Balance Sensitivity, and it's published by Snow Lion. So you can also get it at, uh, you know, on the Internet through Amazon. And um, so as a way to close, I'd like just to do a little chant this evening. And someone came up uh, during the break and said that a friend of hers had died, it sounded like yesterday, on Mount Everest. Is that right? Um, a climber. And would we do a prayer for him? Um, and for all those who've lost their lives in the Himalayas, climbing and not climbing, uh, Tibet and elsewhere. Um, and the simple chant tonight is just one word, Namo, which is often the first word in the Buddhist texts, and it's the Sanskrit root word of paying respects or bowing to. Um, so when you meet someone in India, you say Namaste, which is that same root, I honor the divine within you. And we'll chant that word, and with it you can imagine, again, as you will, the kind of care and respect for those who've died, for those who are still alive, for yourself, for loved ones, others around. Um, each time you chant, it's as if you could bow or pay respects to something with your body and heart and mind. We'll chant for a little bit and then go out into the fall evening. No. and sensitivity of your awakened heart grow in you and flower 
and move from you in your thoughts and words and deeds and from this room to touch all whom you meet in the whole of the earth and beyond. Thank you. Thank you, Alex, and travel well tonight. See you next week. There will be dinner as usual for those who like Monday night dinner next week.